Welcome, everyone, to a very exciting episode of Xenozoic Xenophiles, featuring a very special guest. Returning to talk with us today is the creator, writer, and artist of Xenozoic Tales, Mr. Mark Schultz. Thank you for joining us again, Mark. Hey, I'm glad to be here, Darren and Ruth. It's good to talk to you again, and let me say again that I appreciate all the the great things and promotions you've been doing for Xenozoic Tales. Really appreciate it. You're very welcome. We're just excited to get to share your stuff and hear about the new stuff from you and now to get a chance to sit down and talk with you again. We were actually just looking at our calendar, and I think it's one year, one week, one day, and one hour ago that we last had our talk. Oh, no, really? I didn't know it was that long ago, but yeah, I guess we should make this at least a yearly thing, huh? Absolutely. I like that. And, and it's funny. I wouldn't have remembered exactly what it was, except we sat down in Skype. I saw the Skype list of our previous calls and it's like, oh, there it is. Wow. Wow. <laughs> well, let's talk about that. Since we last got together and talked, you've been busily working on the new Xenozoic Tales book. And I, we're just wondering what has it been like for you to return to the series? You know, what's been fun about it? What's been challenging or what have you thought about it? Well, it's been it's been over 20 years since I did the last story. So, you know, I'm 20 years older. My mind's in a different place. And, yeah, so that has affected. I, I still very much enjoy the characters and the setting. But, uh, you know, different issues, different ways of looking at things. I think that just comes with, you know, changes as you get older. You know, they're, they've become more important to me. And things I wouldn't have considered 20 years ago. So I think I think that has absolutely impacted what I'm doing with this new story. And I hope other people find it as enjoyable to read as I'm finding it enjoyable to get back to to get back to this again. There's always that get back up on the horse thing where it takes a while to figure out exactly what you want to do and exactly how you did things before and what you want to change about what you did before. But it's I got to say, you know, I've been slowly putting it all together for a good year or so now. And it's 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 happening. It's it's coming together, and I'm pretty pleased with what I've got so far, and and the direction I'm going in, and where I think it's going to resolve. Excellent. That's exciting to hear. I'm very excited to hear that, and I was so excited to see the current draft that you shared with us. And I don't want to give anything away, <coughs> but want to just share with you that the characters and the tone of the story felt very familiar. So Jack, Hannah, the garage, and the rest of the world were just perfect. And I feel that's because you've known the characters in this world so well and for so long. Well, thanks. Uh, yeah, I, <laughs> I still had to reacquaint myself with it because it had been a while since I spent any time on the stories. And you know, I've told both of you that I appreciate the synopsis as you give of the stories on your, uh, you know, the regular podcast looking at Cenozoic Tales issue by issue because I'm almost amazed at how much of it I've forgotten. They're, they're nice little quick cliff note recapsulizations of the stories, and sometimes I'm just listening to them with no idea where that story is going, having a vague idea that I did write it, but I'm not, <laughs> not sure where it's going to resolve. So I am, I'm almost in the process of reacquainting myself with what I've done before because it's been, it's been 30, 20, 30 years, depending on the story. That was really funny. I know I, we laughed at that when you shared that recently with us, that there was one story in particular that you were like, I, I sort of remember writing this, but I don't remember how it ended, and that you were sort of like, you know, a fan yourself waiting to see what was going to happen next. That was really uh, funny to for you to share with us. Thanks for that. 
Well, no, it, I was happy that I was intrigued with where it's going, which indicated to me that I was telling a halfway decent story, but I really didn't remember how I resolved the issues I'd set up there. And uh, it resolved pretty well. I was happy with it. So I guess <laughs> I'll just try to keep uh, myself interested, I guess. Excellent. <laughs> Well, it is such a rich world that you created, though, and the new book, the draft that you shared with us, you've got some new world building in that story, too. So I wonder, do you think about Xenozoic and the world that you created often or really just when you're sitting down to work on it actively? Oh, yeah, I guess it is one of the, Yeah, I do think about it. I, I don't know if often is the right word, but, you know, I've got this this greater world of which Xenozoic is a part that is, you know, my fictional universe. And it it, it does tend to be one of the things that is kind of in the back of my mind a lot. And when I'm doing something else, but I have time to just work out ideas or it'll just come to my head now. Some aspect of the uh, Xenozoic world, a piece of the puzzle will fit in. And and it might be like I say, it might be Xenozoic itself. It might be another part of the greater timeline and universe of which Xenozoic is a part. But there's all these interrelating elements that you know. Ideally, I'd like to get a chance to create stories for all these things. I don't know if I ever will, but yeah, it's also in the back of my mind trying to build that larger world of which Xenozoic is a part. I wonder, when you think of something new or different or get one of those ideas, do you stop and write it down someplace special to go back to later? Oh, I try to. I do keep a a black book that I have all my, uh, I think it's called a common book. I think that's kind of the the old-timey term for a book where you put down your notes and story ideas and stuff. So I do keep one of those. And I wish I could say I was good about getting all the ideas down. I'm not. But I try to I try to remember to note as many as I as I can. Well, it's just amazing to me because the world is so rich. I can imagine. Oh, well, I, I guess really I can't imagine what it would have been like to have created such a fascinating world. But I can imagine that once it's created, that like you said, maybe often it's not the right word, but it becomes a part of your conscious and your subconscious. I'm sure so that things get triggered uh, just naturally, and that's fun to think about. Yeah, I'm always. I, I enjoy it. You know, I enjoy it. This is what I am able to do. This is kind of like my, the one skill I have, I guess, is creating stories. And, and the type of stories I'm interested in often do have this larger context or related to each other, connected by some sort of a vague backstory. And that, though that doesn't necessarily have to come through in the actual written stories, it just helps me create context and create what what I need to have going on in my head to to create some sort of a degree of I don't know if realism is the right word but something that speaks to the reader that there is there is a greater world behind the specific story they may be looking at so so yeah it, it, it I enjoyed a great deal that that type of storytelling and I I'm lucky that I get to do it for a living oh yeah we're we're really lucky too to be able to read it and I can just imagine what you're saying there though because you know a lot of like you said a lot of that back subcontext may not ever come out actively in the stories but I understand exactly what you're saying that because of having that background in your head though you know what seems genuine within the stories that you're writing right whether or not they seem to fit right yeah you don't want if you if you create a certain set of rules and circumstances that exist in your fictional universe you don't want to 
step outside of that or throw throw a curveball in there that doesn't work with the logic of your world because the reader i believe the reader even though again like you say it may not be a conscious thing it's just going to in some level it's going to feel false to the reader and it's going to interfere with their enjoyment of the story of just taking in the story without questioning it that makes sense. It has weight, and it lends itself to the reality and the atmosphere being just right. I think that's one of the most important things in, in storytelling, especially if you're creating a fantastic world, is that you're asking, you're asking your readers to accept an awful lot, and you better ground it in some sort of a, a consistent logic that works within the context of your story, or, you know, you're going to lose them. On some, on some level, you're going to lose them. And I would say the world you created has a lot of detail, and like the readers might not know all of it, but that detail is there. And I think another strength of yours is in the art arena and the level of detail in your art. And I wonder where you get your inspiration for the art to be so realistic. <laughs> well, <laughs> it, it, I don't know how realistic it is, but it comes from all over the place. It comes from classic cartoonists like Hal Foster, who did Prince Valiant, who was so good at putting telling details in his work. There was a lot of detail in his work, but it, it was all there for a reason. It wasn't there just to create a pretty picture. It was there to help with the storytelling. And I, I try to keep that in the back of my mind, that if I'm going to put something in there, it should be adding to uh, something that propels the story forward. It's not just there because, you know, I want to draw whatever, a pretty vase in the back. That would be something that says something about the character whose room that vase is in, or it has to say something about something that's coming in the story later. So I try to keep the details pertinent somehow to the story. As far as under, I just have so many influences from great cartoonists like Hal Foster and Wally Wood and Al Williamson, to illustrators, great illustrators like Frederick Gruber, Fortunio Mantegna. I, I know I'm forgetting all sorts of people here, all sorts of influences, but then there's also the uh, influences from the cinema, like great cinematographers who did wonderful work in black and white filmmaking, working with shadow and light and uh, creating implications of depth or conversely flat design with, with their photography skills. Now, these are all things that go into creating you know, inspiring the images I want or, or the feeling I want to create in the images of my work. That's that's fabulous description. I love the way you just mentioned, though, about the vase, you know, that it has to say something, even if it's just saying something about the person whose room it's sitting in. That, I had never thought of that. That's fabulous. But <laughs> Well, well you, you read about, or, or if you study, I guess, the, the great like film set designers or people who dress the sets, and worked, of course, with good directors who were real strong storytellers. All those details had a reason for being there, you know. And I, I try to carry that over into what I do. I don't have a team of people working with me, but I, 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 try, to, I try to be very conscious that if I'm going to put a, a telephone in there, what should that telephone look like? Or if there's an object on the desk, what should that object look like? Or And, and conversely, you know, when Hannah and Jack are out in the outback in the uh, their natural environment you know what kind of a what's the geology underlying the vegetation that's there and, and what vegetation would be there based on that geology and I, again i think it's all stuff that goes towards creating a feeling of 
acceptance in the reader if it looks they may not understand why it looks right but hopefully it looks close enough to something that they're on some level familiar with that they can just accept it more easily than than having to stretch their their uh, credibility to accept it well I, I know from our point of view you always achieve that goal because that's the reason I think that your art is so well respected and I mean everywhere we go it's we actually were at a, a little tiny comic show just recently that we just stopped by to uh, see what might be for sale in the the dollar bins or something like that and Ruth was wearing a Xenozoic t-shirt and we we walked in the door and the first person who saw us stopped us and wanted to know where we got the t-shirt because <laughs> they're such a huge fan of you and Xenozoic tells so we ended up having this long conversation and they were aware that the new book was in process as well so we were talking about that so it was exciting and I that's the reason your work is so well remembered and so well respected and you've got people excited about this new book that's coming out well in advance of it coming out so that's that's terrific well thanks i uh thanks for passing that along it's it gives me hope that there will be a, a readership out there for this it's been a long time since the last story was out so i'm always worried that those people that had an interest in it back in the 80s and 90s may not be waiting around any longer and and of course you're always hoping that you're going to draw in a new crowd too, a younger crowd so keeping my fingers crossed well, I, I hope that's the case. I'm confident that it will be. But I want to circle back to another thing that you were talking about when you were talking about the art, though, which you mentioned shadow and light. And I know that what you sent us is, is a draft of the book, but Ruth and I were already just blown away in the draft status of the artwork and the detail. And it was so easy to see the use of shadow and light that you're using there. Some of the pages, you just looked at it and you could sink into them because of that use of shadow and light, the opposite effect and how they interacted with each other. So I just wanted to tell you how much that we love that. And I, I wanted to ask you, you know, like how important is that use of shadow and light to your storytelling and the method you like to take? Yeah, well, th thanks again. What you saw was something I'd never done before. I, I worked out very carefully. I did preliminaries page by page of the entire story. And I'd never done that before. I'd done like really, really rough thumbnails of my page layouts in the past and then gone directly to the board, which I do the finish art on. The, the finished pencils and the lettering goes on them and then I ink everything in. But because I... I'm not on a tight schedule doing this story. I'm kind of taking my time to try to get it as, as right as I can. I, I, I did an entire layout in a preliminary stage where I did these detailed preliminaries that uh, I wanted to work out as much as, as the compositional elements and the, and the, and the light and dark, the, uh, the way the light and shadow play and the anatomy of the characters and just the general design of everything. I wanted to get those drawing problems out of the way before I proceeded to the, the finished boards. But to answer the specific question, yeah, I, I see light and shadow, dark and light, as patterns that help lead lead the eye from panel to panel, hopefully. One of the things that I look back on my earlier work, and those last few issues of Xenozoic Tales got very detailed and very intricate, but I, I think one of the failings of that work was that I don't see where there's a great flow panel to panel and page to page. There's too many panels where I think the eye just gets stuck looking at details on one panel. And what, what I'm trying to hopefully improve my, my work, improve my storytelling, is using uh, light and dark 
to keep the eye moving from panel to panel and, and keep the reader moving through the story instead of just getting stuck on one specific image. I don't know if that quite makes sense without actually having visual examples <laughs> to, to point to, but but it's something you'll just have to trust me on this, that I'm very carefully trying to, uh, to uh, in fact, maybe I can send you an example of what I'm talking about, but I'm trying to keep through through lines and shapes, light and dark shapes, as well as just a general panel arrangement. It's just it's all about keeping the uh, the eye and the attention of the reader moving through the story instead of getting getting stuck in any one place. And that also has to do just in basic storytelling. One of the other problems I'm trying to work out in the prelims is it's just clarity in storytelling. I don't want anyone to look at one panel and have to try to figure out what's going on here. I don't understand what uh, you know. Is that a leg? Is that an arm? Is that what are they doing? You know, I want it to be perfectly clear. And so what you two saw was the preliminary to visuals without the script. I don't have the script, the dialogue completely set yet. So you just saw the visuals. And one reason that I wanted you to look at that was to, to tell me how much you could figure out of the visuals without the script. Because I want as much, again, something to figure out in the preliminary stage. I wanted as much information as possible to be conveyed as clearly as possible in that uh, in the images and i appreciate very much the feedback you've given me on that well I'll, I'll say i know that you were very successful with what you're wanting to do because i hadn't really thought about it but i know when we wrote you back with our thoughts we ended up writing about entire sequences because that's actually the way we saw the book we didn't see it as pages and panels there were sequences several pages where this sequence felt like a coherent piece mm -hmm. and uh, so I didn't think about that when we were writing you back with our feedback but that uh, I think you hit what you wanted to because that's the way it flowed to us it's like it went from you know an elaborate sequence to another elaborate sequence so oh good that's encouraging that's that's exactly what I want my, my favorite director a uh, film director of all times was, was Howard Hawks and he he said that you know he looked at film as as a set of scenes or sequences and say you have 20 of these scenes or sequences in a film that add up to the whole story. And he said, in the job of a good director, if you're a good director, and I, I don't remember ex specifically what he said, but something to the effect, if you're a good director, you've made more than half of those scenes interesting. That was the word he used, interesting, meaning it's something that I think he felt was good, strong storytelling that kept things moving. So my kind of goal in, in laying out this through the preliminaries was to try to figure out how to make, yeah, every one of those sequences or as many of those sequences that are needed to take the story from its beginning to its resolution, how to make as many of those as interesting as possible. <laughs> well, you succeeded. <laughs> I know. It was a great way to look at the art, almost like a silent film without having the dialogue there and to just really go through and be able to absorb the story without having the conversations laid out or any narrative laid out. And, and that's another good source of inspiration that you're, you're, you've brought up, is, is silent films are so great for exactly that, to figure out how to convey information as visually as possible. We're huge fans of Buster Keaton and Harold Lloyd. Oh, God. We love watching their films. Cannot go wrong. You cannot <laughs> go wrong with those. And you see, where they needed to, they would, they would drop in the, uh, the dialogue. 
but definitely the best of those had they refined it so there was as little of those dialogue pauses necessary as possible. Uh, absolutely, they both could tell the story through the visuals and through the facial expressions. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I remember when we last talked that you shared there was a third major character in the new story and that you were wanting to make sure that you got the dynamics right between that new character, Jack and Hannah, and I wonder if you feel that you got the balance the way you wanted it to be. You know, that's one of the things that I'm still resolving in the dialogue, actually, because I do want it to be just right. I think I'm pretty close to where I want it to be, but I want that third character, and I don't want to, I probably shouldn't say too much here, but I I, I, I don't want her to be a, a villain. I, I guess I can, I'll say that. I don't want her, she's definitely a sort of antagonist to a certain degree, but I don't want her to be a villain. Yeah, I'm trying to get this balance between the three characters, this new character and Jack and Hannah. And it's, it's sort of a triad, this story, between the three of them. But yeah, I'm still trying to fine tune that, yeah. I'm sure that that will be just what you want in the end, because I know we really liked the character and really enjoyed spending time with her. Absolutely. Great. Well, I, I've got a completely sort of different question, though, about the a new book, because it, it sort of didn't quite register on me, but I, I thought the scenes in Jack's Garage were sort of fun. It made me remember how much I always liked the scenes at Jack's Garage. They're never really a key part of the story, usually, but... It's always it's a nice, comforting place sort of to spend. And it made me wonder if the cars that we see in Xenozoic Tales, if those are just particularly cars from the era that you like the most, or if you think that those cars in particular fit in the Xenozoic world. <laughs> well, I, I'll be honest, right. I, I just like drawing cars from that, that particular age, early 50s mostly. I, I think that is the high point of American industrial design or automotive design. I just think they're lovely, you know, a little earlier than that. And the design is a little, it's not quite there yet. It's a little, um, what's the word? It's not quite as sleek, not quite as aerodynamic. And you get a little after that period, after like 1955, 56, and the form overtakes function. It becomes, you know, that became the era of the big fins and stuff. And it's just the ornamentation became more important than the solid design and you lose something after that point. And then as you go forward, you know, more and more, it became more and more about gas mileage and every car becomes more and more geared towards just being as aerodynamic as possible to save gas mileage. So you move past the, the beauty of the design of that, that one kind of sweet period for me, that's late forties through the early fifties. So, long answer, but I, I love that period. That's why I do the cars. The overriding kind of rationalization I give is that that would have been the era where the integrity of the, the bodies of the cars was at its high point, and they just lasted the best over time. And that's why Jack continues to use them. Uh, no, I love that answer because it goes right back to what you were talking about, that you know it's not out there clearly in the story, but you've got a reason for that. And that's why they seem so natural in the world, because that period, the cars just fit in this world. The later and the earlier, they wouldn't fit as well. So, And you've got that reasoning in your head for why that happened, and that's why it works. Yeah. So that's a great answer. I like that. Well, it's kind of retrofit reasoning, like I say. The truth is, <laughs> I just love the look of the cars. 
<laughs> well, you made it work. And, you know, they, 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 they ride pretty low to the ground. So you figure the terrain they're going over, those axles wouldn't last very long. Before they were. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's a gimme. That's one of those gimmies that uh, I've gotten away with so far. I think it works. It does. Yes. yes. <laughs> I wanted to ask about a Facebook post that I saw some time ago that showed some illustrations of giant bees. It was a preview post for fans. And I wanted to ask if you were thinking about the current issue of the declining bee population when you decided to use bees in the story or some other reason. You know, I, I'm very interested. One of the underwriting interests I have that goes into Xenozoic Tales is our human relationship with the environment. And as part of that, I am very interested in the situation with our uh, domestic bee populations and, and now through some wild bee populations. But that, that wasn't a specific reason I'm using bees in this story. <laughs> Giant insects are just really cool. And uh, <laughs> they're right up there with dinosaurs as far as I'm concerned. So I, I like the idea of what kind of was the incentive for using bees in this story. It was the idea that they're, they're a hive creature which has a hive intelligence. They're social creatures, and I just find them fascinating. And even though their intelligence isn't our intelligence, there's a lot of similarities between how we inter- humans interact societally and how bees interact, too, to the greater benefit of, of their, their hive, their, their society. So I just find that interesting, and, and I could use that in this particular, the idea for this story I had. I appreciate hearing that. And what I know is I would hate to encounter a giant bee. So it's very scary. <laughs> no, no. Well, you know what? I, I, we're lucky. We've got our backyard here where we live has a number of different bees, bumblebees, all sorts of different bees, actually. And we've, my wife plants flower, wildflowers that will attract bees. So I get to see a good variety of them. And I've done some uh, videos of the bees and I want to post at some point on the Facebook page. But they've been a, a real inspiration for what I'm doing in the story, even though the species of bees, the giant species that I have in the story are completely manufactured by me. I, I want them to be following rules that other bees follow. Right. Some some foundational. Some foundational stuff, yeah. Even though, again, an insect that side wouldn't work in the real world. <laughs> There's reasons that insects don't get all that big. But so that's another one of those gimmies that we'll, we'll just accept that they've got some sort of a hydraulic system working their wings that allows them and some breathing mechanism that allows them to get that big. And actually, one of the backstories to that is that the Xenozoic age, I figure, has a higher oxygen content than our current atmosphere, our contemporary atmosphere. And higher oxygen content turns out does allow for larger invertebrates to flourish the mechanisms, the breathing mechanisms that insects have function better and will allow for greater size in a higher, a richer, a richer oxygen atmosphere. So, again, that's my rationalization. <laughs> it makes sense to me. Okay, that's all I need to hear. <laughs> <laughs> and Ruth has a science background, so that's good. <laughs> okay. Yeah, let me know if I go too far afield. I'm always looking for feedback on this stuff. Well, uh, talking about some feedback, last time we talked, you mentioned that you were going to chain yourself to the desk and hope that you didn't go crazy working on this new book. So I'm just wondering if over the last few months you felt you've got a good balance of working on the book, but also <clears throat> getting some time away. Well, to be honest, I ha- for the last few months, I haven't been working on the book. I've, I've had to work on uh, commissions and other assignments that are helping to pay the bills. 
the, the Venezuelan story is something that I'm not going to see any kind of financial recompension for until it's done. So it's going to be a, a long process of having to take on other work to to uh, to subsidize it. So <laughs> I have I'm away from it much longer than I'd like to be. But yeah, I, I can't complain. I've had it's good that I get away from it and get some variety, so I don't get stale just working on one thing. Yeah, but I am eager to get back to it. I'm excited to hear that. And I noticed some photos not long ago of a trip that you took to the Southwest. Yeah. And wonder if that gave you some inspiration or background material for your current work. Absolutely. I There was a lot of that area of the world that I've never been to before. We took a trip through the, the Colorado, through the Rockies, and I got to see some of that environment, which was great. But then we went to uh, a number of the national parks in southern Utah, which are just unbelievable. It's it's alien. It's so the variety of geological shapes and colors. Yeah, a lot of inspiration. We also went out to through Death Valley, saw Death Valley, and that was that was inspirational. Again, I'm from the northeastern part of the United States, so it's an entirely, entirely different environment of what I'm doing. And we wound up in uh, Lone Pine, California, which is on the eastern foothills of the uh, Sierra Nevadas. And so you have these towering mountains in the background and the Alabama hills before them. And there are these fantastic rock formations that are pretty unique. I've nothing else that I know that's quite like that in the United States, but it's it's uh it's a uh, an area that's used a lot in films, especially for western films, mm-hmm. and uh it stands in a lot of times for the Himalayas and for that area of uh South Central Asia like Afghanistan. Contemporary film goers might recognize it from the uh the beginning of the uh, first Iron Man film when uh Tony Stark is supposed to be demonstrating his new missiles in Afghanistan, that was the okay. Alabama hills, and uh, the Sierra Nevadas standing in for the Himalayas. I loved it because it not only is it ungodly gorgeous and 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 otherworldly, but it's it also has this great rich film history, uh, Hollywood film history behind it. Yeah. So anyway, all this stuff is going to show up. I, I mean, I've already started to incorporate some of the rock formations I saw into uh, some of the, uh, the environments you saw in the preliminaries. Uh, that was so exciting because when we saw those photos on Facebook, we were just thinking, oh, you know, it looks like you're having lots of fun. But at the same time, it looks like you're right out there in the Xenozoic world. So we were just like, oh, he, he's doing some work on the side, I bet. Absolutely. I mean, I, what could be better? I get my work and my, my enjoyment or, you know, the things I enjoy are pretty much the same thing. So... Yeah, I was I was doing a lot of photographing and a lot of uh, not enough, but some sketching. Yeah. Yeah. I got a lot of ideas from from that trip. Well, Mark, it's been fabulous to chat with you again today and to learn more about the book and other things that you're working on. But we wanted to mention one thing, which is to encourage listeners who want to learn even more about what you've been up to to pick up issue 15 of Comic Book Creator from Tomorrow's Publishing that came out just recently. And there's an amazing extensive interview in there with lots of photos and art. And we just loved that book and just wanted to mention that and compliment you on that excellent book that came out. John Cook did a great job. And it's visually just stunning, too, the layouts he put together. 
I loved it. Loved looking through that. Appreciate that. And and as I was looking through, I noticed photos of you and your wife, Denise Prowl, who we actually mention in our credits almost every episode <laughs> of our show. <laughs> Denise, I won't say minimal, but comics aren't her thing. She appreciates them, but she's got this reputation within the business and fandom because she, she does my lettering and coloring. <laughs> so she's always amazed when her name pops up on the internet. <laughs> she's an illustrator who does her own thing. She does children's book illustration. And this is kind of just a, something that marriage kind of uh, sidetracked her into. <laughs> it was convenient. Yeah. Yeah. And it was just delightful for us to see the photos of the two of you together. There's some really gorgeous photos in there from your wedding day all the way up to current time. How about that? I had a head of hair back then. Jeez. <laughs> and I also spotted a photo of you with Ray Harryhausen, yeah. and you know that we love his films, and thought that was a great photo. Oh, he was he was such a delightful guy. Boy, it was fun to. I was lucky to get to spend time with him. A really really nice gentleman. And how did you get the opportunity to meet him? And how many times were you able to? Well, back in the I guess would have been the early nineties. I guess through the nineties, he was still doing conventions. He was he was getting older, and he was pretty close to to stopping that aspect of his his life, his career. But we just coincided that we did a number of conventions together over several years, and got to have some meals with him, and was invited up to his room a couple times to he would crack open these big old cases and show the crumbling remains of uh, some of his models. Yeah. I was just there at the right time before it was too late. That's, that was great. Yeah, that's fabulous. We love his films, and that was just fabulous to uh, see those photos and to hear you share that. I know we had the good fortune just recently, well, a few months ago, to guest on an episode of Soundtrack Alley, where we discussed oh, yeah. the soundtrack to the film Jason and the Argonaut <laughs> with Randy Andrews. And while we were having that conversation, because he's a Xenozoic Tales fan and a fan of yours, so it came up during the conversation about Jason and the Argonauts how much all three of us wanted to have gotten to see the movie Ray Harryhausen should have made, which was an adaptation of Xenozoic Tales. You know, boy, I'll tell you, to see the, the, the dinosaurs and Xenozoic done as they should be done as stop motion creatures, boy, that would have that would have been uh, that would have been nice. Well, that, that lives in my head. Yeah. <laughs> see, now there's so many great soundtracks to Herman's films and. Yeah. One of my favorites is First Men in the Moon. Oh. Yeah, which you gotta check out if you haven't listened to that. We have it. <laughs> but 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 yeah, those uh the Seventh Voyage of Sinbad and Jason and the Argonauts, they're just yes. yeah. The Valley of Ganji. Yes. Great We have all of those. <laughs> yeah. No, they're all great. Absolutely. I mean, that was, as I was uh, growing up, I mean, that was Saturday and Sunday afternoon films on, you know, local TVs Absolutely. for me. And I was glued to the set. I don't know if, how old you are, but when I, it was like, if you saw it, this was before VCRs even, if, if it was on TV, you'd better be there to see it then because you never knew if you were going to see it again. That's right. Yeah, those were, <laughs> those were the days. <laughs> Well, that's fantastic, Mark. I really appreciate hearing those stories, and I love that we have uh, so many shared interests. And we just, again, want to thank you for taking the time to talk to us. We want to encourage everyone to go and follow the Mark Schultz Xenozoic Tales and Other Stories Facebook page. I know Fred Perry runs that for you. It's fabulous. I know you send him the stuff that you want posted. It's a great page. Everyone should follow it and know what the latest news is. Ruth, Darren, it's always a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you, Mark. Thank you so much. Good luck with everything. We 
want to thank Mark Schultz for taking time out of his busy schedule for that interview. That was very generous of him. We know that, like us, there are many fans who are excited about the new Xenozoic Tales book that he is creating, and it was terrific to get the latest updates from him. On the Mark Schultz Xenozoic Tales and Other Stories Facebook page, Mark just announced several upcoming convention appearances. He'll be at New York's Big Apple Con in April, and in July you can find him at LA Ultimate Comic Art and Collectible Show as well as San Diego Comic Con. We'd love to attend one of those, but won't be able to make that happen this year. But instead, we'll be happy for everyone else who gets a chance to see him. If you enjoyed this interview and would like to learn more about Mark Schultz, we highly recommend that you pick up Comic Book Creator Number 15 from Tomorrow's Publishing. It's an 84-page magazine with an in-depth interview with Mark Schultz and includes lots of great art and photos. You can buy it directly from the publisher and at comic shops and bookstores. We'll include a link to the Tomorrow's site so you can check out the sample pages and pick up a copy if you'd like. They offer both digital and print versions at a reasonable price. Thank you all for taking time to listen to this special interview. Next time, we'll be getting back to the basics and talking about another Xenozoic Tales story. We'll be right back with your feedback right after these promos from other podcasts that you may enjoy. Hello. Do you enjoy movie scores? Do you like science fiction? Do you like fantasy? And do you like movies? Uh, uh, everything's under control. Situation normal. What happened? Uh, it had a slight weapons malfunction, but uh, everything's perfectly all right now. We're fine. We're all fine here now. Thank you. How are you? Well, I have a podcast for you. Soundtrack Alley. It's a podcast where I take you on a journey through the time of my childhood and beyond to give you a glimpse into the world of movies, science fiction, fantasy, and other films that touch me on a personal level. You'll also enjoy interviews from film composers from famous movies from the past or even current time. Enjoy the interaction I have with guests on my show every so often, and check out other shows that share in guest spots. So sit back, relax, and let the soundtrack world wash over you, and check out Soundtrack Alley. You'll love it. Hello, I'm Pat Sampson, and I would like to invite you to join me on my podcast, The Longbox Crusade. On this podcast, I'm reading through my 20-plus longboxes that I have stored away in my basement. On each episode, I will select a random issue from my collection and take a very highbrow, thoughtful approach to examining these truly American art forms that help to shape our popular culture. Oh, I like comics too. Uh, can I get a comic out of my longbox that syncs up with the month and year of the comic from your long box and chat about that too oh oh and video games can we talk about games or, or maybe james bond too i love james bond <sighs> fine jared elbrick aka the yard sale artist we can add some of your comics and 
enthusiasm to the show. It might help get a deeper introspection of... Did someone say James Bond? I love James Bond, and I love comics too. I can bring a comic from my lawn box to sync up with you guys. I also love movies and music, even news stories that tie into the time period that match the comic books we review. Uh, this is what I get for inviting both the Albrecht brothers into my show. Jason, how the heck can we fit all that into my deeply intellectual review of... Well, you know what? Fine. Let's do it. Let's cram it all into one podcast. Join us on the Longbox Crusade, folks. We'll bounce around in time from issue to issue, pulled randomly from my Longboxes, and the Alpert Brothers will bring along issues with the same month and year cover date. We'll talk about the comics and the time period they come from, including... World news of that time. Top 40 music chart toppers. Movies, both good and bad. Maybe even some favorite recipes. Whatever I think is funny. We'll probably have to suffer through things that Jared thinks are funny. We'll jam it all into one pop culture extravaganza examining the comics in my longbox and the time period surrounding them. Join us for a wild ride through time on the Longbox Crusade podcast as we attempt to read them all. What's in your longbox? Next up is listener feedback, when we share emails and other messages we've received since last time. Thanks to everyone for the comments. Your support and encouragement is wonderful, and we appreciate everyone who took the time to write in. Dr. G of the Pulp to Pixel Podcast Network and Joe Crawford of the blog for the non-discerning reader shared their enthusiasm about the last episode, getting in touch to say how much they really enjoyed the last show. Noel Thingval let us know he's been catching up on episodes of Xenozoic Xenophiles. He listened to four episodes in just one month. Thanks for listening, Noel, and glad you're enjoying them. In case you don't know, Noel does the excellent Greystoke podcast, which covers the many fun films of Tarzan. Clinton Robinson of Coffee and Comics wanted everyone to know that the streaming provider Tubi TV has Cadillacs and Dinosaurs in their selection of shows. The service is free and does include minimal ads. So if anybody is looking for a way to watch the animated series, here's one option. Thanks so much for making us aware of this, Clinton. We'll be covering the animated series soon, so this is perfect timing. Daniel Barrios let us know he really likes the music we use in the introduction of our podcast. Thank you, Daniel. And he shared that he loves the soundtrack for the animated series Cadillacs and Dinosaurs. He hopes to find a copy of that CD one day. I'd like to find one too, Daniel. Next, we want to extend our thanks to everyone who supported the show on social media since last episode. These are people who commented or shared posts from us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook, and we sincerely appreciate all the support. Before we start, let me say if we miss a name, just let us know and we'll correct it next time. And please forgive us if we mispronounce your name. Just write and let us know, and we'll be sure to correct that next time, too. The 20th Century Geek Podcast with Scott Weatherly, Alan Wright of BoldOutlaw.com, Ange of the Supergirl Comic Box Commentary blog, Anthony Joseph, Ashford of the Ride On Network featuring Feathers and Foes and Straight Outta Gallifrey, Bob from Real Tarks 9, Brian Mulvey, Chris Carnes and Jerry Green of Bat Books for Beginners, Chris Mounts, Chris Sheehan of the Cosmic Treadmill Podcast and the blog Chris is on Infinite Earths, Clinton Robison of the Coffee and Comics blog and podcast, Colby Webb of the Big Cheese Comics, Comics in the Golden Age with Mike and Chris, Derek William Crabb of the Fan Holes Podcast and History of Comics on Film. Diabolo Frank of the Idlehead of Diabolo and the Diana Prince Wonder Woman Podcast. 
Dr. G, Man of Nerdology of the Pulp to Pixel Podcast Network, The Drunken Dork Podcast, Ed and Terry Moore of Till Productions, Eric Mannix of Out of the Fridge and Pages for All Ages, Grant Richter of Avatar of the Green and the Crack of Thoom Podcast, Green Lantern HG, The Irredeemable Shag of the Fire and Water Podcast Network, Jared Albrick, the Yard Cell Artist from Comics with Normies and on Her Majesty's Secret Podcast, Jay Jones of the Silver and Gold Podcast, Jeff Messer of Geek Brain Podcast and Blog, Jeffrey Willis of Hollow World Blog and Wave Your Geek Flag, Joe Crawford of the Blog for the Non-Discerning Reader, John Baker who does sci-fi TV reviews at 3 If By Space, Justice's First Dawn with Mike Peacock, Karen Williams of the Sweet Between the Pages Blog, Artist Ken Solo, Laurel Phillips, also known as Mountain Flower, Let's Talk Masters of the Universe, Longbox Crusade Podcast with Pat, Jared, Jason, and Delvin, Luke Dobb of Dobb Creative. Mark Adams of the Mark's Mess Podcast. Mark Sweeney from the ITG Blog and Podcast. Martin Gray of the blog Too Dangerous for a Girl. Michael Allen Carlisle of the blog Crap Box of Son of Cthulhu. Mike and Paul of Waiting for Doom and DC OCD. Parleypod Network of Podcasts. Pat Sampson of the Longbox Crusade. Professor Allen of the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network. Randy Andrews of the Soundtrack Alley and Gen 13 Podcast. Reggie Hancock of the Cosmic Treadmill Podcast, Rolled Spine Podcast, Roy Cleary of the Silver and Gold Podcast, Talk Nerdy to Me, Vic Sage of the Retroist, Wendy Freeman of the Podcast Double Page Spread, Zach Sally, and a big thanks to Mark Schultz, Xenozoic Tales, and Other Stories Facebook page for sharing our episodes. Before we go, we want to provide our contact information. Please let us know your thoughts through email, Facebook, or Twitter. If you want to contact us directly or have something you would like to have read on the show, then please send an email to xenozoicxenophiles at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and Tumblr under the name Xenozoic Xenophiles. You can also listen to the show through iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play, and all of our episodes are always available at xenozoicxenophiles.com. You can also find the show on YouTube as part of the Rad Adventures Podcast Network. That's Rad, R-A-D, which is short for Ruth and Darren. On the Rad Adventures YouTube channel, you'll find all of the episodes for all of our podcasts, including Xenozoic Xenophiles, as well as Trekker Talk about 23rd century bounty hunter Mercy St. Clair by Ron Randall, and Warlord Worlds about the comic creations of Mike Grell, including the Warlord, John Sable, and Green Arrow. If you like the show, please consider leaving a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Every review helps the podcast be more likely to be discovered. And on YouTube, we hope you'll subscribe to the channel and give us some likes on the videos. Thanks for listening, and we hope you come back next time for another new episode of Xenozoic Xenophiles. Xenozoic Xenophiles is a proud member of the Comics Podcast Network. For more information, please visit comicspodcasts.com. We are not affiliated with Mark Schultz or the various companies that have published the series. The views expressed on the show are solely ours. Music is taken from the album, Movie Tunes, Background Music, Songs and Loops, Volume 2. We make no money from this podcast and no copyright infringement is intended. (laughs) 